Please remain standing for the reading of God's Word. I will be reading the text for this morning's is from Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 9. I'll be reading in Mandarin Chinese. The English text will be on the screen as I read. Shangdi Hu Jiao Yabolan. Yehua Du Yabolam Shua Niao Li Kai Jia Xiang Chinzu Hufu Chin de Jia Dao Wa Yao Jishir Ni the Difang Wa Bi Shirni Chongwe Da Gua Wa Bi Sifu Gaini Ni Shi Shangming Yuan Bo Ni Bi Chongwei Biren the Jufu Wa Bi Sigaini Nashia Jufu Ni the Ren Joju Nashia Joju Ni the Ren Shi Shang Wan Zu Bi Yin Ni Er Mong Fu Verse Four Yabalam Jiu Zhao Na Yehua Fang Fu Li Kai Hulan Jar Lode Yuta Tongxing Nasher Yabalam Chishu Wu Sui Yabalam Dai Chizi Salai Juar Lode Yiji Zai Hulan Ji Jan de Tai Wu He Sode Nupu Chi Chong Lai Dao Janan Dala Jana Yiho Yabalam Ji Xu Xian Ching Lai Dao Shi Jian de Moli Shang Shu Nali Dang Shi Janan Zai Na Di Fang Verse 7 Yehua Shang Yabalam Shi Xian Dui Ta Shua Weyao Ba Jarpar Tu Di Zi Gai Ni De Hou Yi Yabalam Jiu Zai Na Li Wei Shang Ta Shi Xian De Yehua Zu Le Yi Zuo Tan Ran Hou Ta Men Yau Qi Cheng Qian Zhu Botoli Dong Mian De Shan Chu Zai Na Li Da Qi Zhang Peng Taman de Ximian Shi Botoli Dong Mian Shi Ai Yabolan Yau Zai Na Li Zhu Le Yi Zuo Tan Qiu Gao Yehua Zhi Hou Yabolan Ji Xu Qian Xing Nandi This is God's Word All right, good morning, church. Kids are being dismissed for uh, Children's Church, and a reminder to parents to pick them up right before, right after you take communion. Uh, if you're visiting, my name is Brian. I'm the lead pastor here at Trinity City Church. And one of the things you might be curious about is why would a scripture reading be in a different language? And that's a small way in our liturgy that we recognize the, the global nature of the Christian faith, the, that this is a faith that is to be a blessing to all nations and all peoples. And it's a small way we remind ourselves of that uh, with the way we do scripture reading. Uh, we are still in the book of Genesis. Uh, we're preaching through the book of Genesis. That will get us through uh, the spring. Uh, we, we ordered some of uh, the, the last uh, uh, sermons, and so we actually squished it together, and we will be wrapping up the book of Genesis in the month 
of May, uh, and then uh, during the summer we'll be switching to uh, some other things, but among them being the Summer of the Psalms series where we will be, be preaching through the, the Psalms in the 90s, uh, which, uh, you know, if you grew up in the 90s, you have memories in the 90s, we'll see if the Psalms are exactly the same vibe. We'll find out. You've got to come back here this summer uh, to check that out. Uh, today's sermon is at a pivotal point in the book of Genesis when we switch from these, this ancient uh, history of the creation of the world and God being the creator of all people to this calling of a specific people and the unpacking of a specific history. Uh, so that's what we're going to be uh, diving into in Genesis chapter 12 today. Let's go ahead and pray, prep our hearts for uh, God's word today. God, we are grateful that you speak, that this is a word and this is a history, this is a story that we are to receive and to hear, to receive conviction and calling and grace and transformation at the power of your word. Lord, help us to hear that word and help us to hear that calling and how the, the calling of this, this man and this family in this time is the same calling that applies to this local church and to the church globally. To be a blessing, to be blessed with the good life in Christ so that we may bless others. And help us to see how that blessing is not dependent on our perfection, our ability to even carry out the mission but it's based on a promise-keeping God that you are good, Lord, and that you keep your word. And we want to rest in that this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I got the joy this week of uh, chaperoning a uh, field trip that my, uh, my boy went on in his, in his uh, class. Uh, he's a fourth grader. and We, on Friday, got to go to the Minnesota History Museum, uh, which is one of my favorite museums. I love the History Museum. I love all the different sites throughout Minnesota that you can check out to un understand Minnesota's uh, short history. And uh, the, I got this group of, of uh, five young boys that were in my group, and so I nicknamed them after the burger joint. They were my five guys, and so I, uh, that helped me too because I, I, you know, I know my son's name, but the other ones I sometimes struggle with learning names, so there were five guys. So if I, you know, three came back, I'm like, where's the five guys? Go find number you know, four and five. Uh, eventually, I learned some of their names, but that was just me and the five guys at the Minnesota History Museum uh, this Friday. It was, a, it was a lovely Friday. It was a lovely setup for a lovely day. My favorite place to go at the Minnesota History Museum, and uh, these guys, uh, these five guys, shared this, uh, <laughs> shared this opinion. It's, the, it's the, the weather exhibit where you get to go into this, uh, this uh, basement and experience a tornado that happened in history, so they try to stimulate uh, that experience. And we went over there, and when we wanted to go there the first time, there was just this long line of, of folks. And I thought at first it looked like that there's uh, some ladies there celebrating some type of bachelorette party or something like that. It was just a group of young ladies, and they had tiaras on and a sash on. I'm just like, what are they up to? Uh, eventually, there, they, there were these groups of folks that had a similar vibe throughout the Minnesota History Museum. And I read their sash, and we finally figured out that these are princesses from different towns in Minnesota 
that were here for the St. Paul Winter Carnival and to celebrate that. And there's like this big crowning of a queen that happens during the uh, uh, St. Paul Winter Carnival. And so they were there hanging out. So there's just like, I mean, there's like hundreds of princesses from like different towns in like northern Minnesota and southern Minnesota and western Minnesota. It was, it was, uh, it was something to behold. But my five guys started talking to these groups of ladies when they would see them. Because, I mean, you couldn't go to a room or a hallway without seeing, like, some group, three, four, five, six plus princesses walking around. Uh, and they kept on saying the same thing to them. They, they would see a group of girls, and they'd be, they would go, you go, girl, you slay. Every time that they would see a group of princesses, you go, girl, you slay, you slay all day, uh, is what my five guys were saying to these groups of girls. And they were loving it. They were just laughing, uh, having a good time. Um, I don't know if that made me a bad chaperone, if I was supposed to, like, correct them or something, but I thought it was just too funny, uh, too cute. So I just kept kept letting them and kind of even encouraging it, like, hey, okay, there's another group over there. Um, did you say it to them yet? Um, and it's this really, I mean, they stuck out. I mean, you, you, had to, you, you had to, like, think, like, what, what was the background with the story and, like, how does one become a princess of her, her town? But there's kind of this recognition from my five guys that they had been uh, blessed in some sense, that they had received some type of acknowledgement, some type of blessing, in this case, from their town. Uh, that uh, allowed them to be able to wear this sash and wear this crown and to have this title. And blessing and recognizing blessing is a big theme in today's story that you, you can sometimes see things in, in our culture. And in this case, we saw these princesses all around the Minnesota History Museum and kind of recognize that they had been blessed in some type of earthly sense. And in this story, we get to be introduced to a particular family that is called by God to be blessed in a very much more of a richer, fuller, deeper sense than this opening story. But nonetheless, there's a similar recognition that God wants to raise up a people that others would look at them and just say, there's something different about you. You're sticking out. You must be blessed. You must be called to something specific. And we'll not only see this glorious call for a particular family and whose father is uh, Father Abram or Abraham, but also, like a lot of Genesis, the trouble that follows God's intervention into history. So let's, let's, let's look at this, this call of uh, this man named Abram and his wife Sarai. Uh, chapter 11 serves as a transition from the story of Babel and all the ancient history that we had been going through where we learn about uh, this creator God who created all things and that he's the God of all peoples and that, and that even his good creation, uh, what happens is that it starts to unravel because of human beings sinning and rebelling against God and his good creation. And so now that story that goes from, you know, Adam and Eve and the garden and the flood and Babel now switches from this big scope global history to zoning in on one particular family. From God as creator of all things to God being the redeemer of a specific people that he's calling for his purposes and his grace. What, one of the things I think Genesis 1 through 11 does set up, though, is that the God who calls this people isn't some type of tribal God, some specific God, some type of opinion of a particular 
group of people, but this again is the creator God of heaven and earth, the Lord of all mankind, who is about to intervene once again in history among a particular people for a particular purpose. And the thing that connects chapters 1 through 11 and 12 is this genealogy, a family tree that gives some interesting details to set up the story of chapter 12. Again, we're introduced to Abram. He's later be, he will be called Abraham. And his wife, Sarai, who will later be called Sarah. And we're introduced that they have no kids. And the detail it gives is because they have been unable to conceive. In addition, Abram has a nephew named Lot. Uh, and we find out in the genealogy that Lot's father had passed away. And so likely there's this relationship where Uncle Abram has adopted Lot to be a son in his family, that, that he became a father figure to Lot. And so we're introduced to this small family unit uh, that already has faced a lot of difficulties in life. This small household has no way to pass on their family name, and, it's, and they are facing uncertain times, especially as they age with no kids to take care of them in a world that doesn't have these public safety nets that we have today. Yet, out of all the families of the earth, God now chooses to speak to this one that's facing so much difficulty. Genesis 12.1 says, The Lord said to Abram, Go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. God says, leave the land of your family and go to a new land. And notice the emphasis that of, of it's making clear that it's a difficult ask. Abram and Sarai are leaving their country, their people, their entire extended household, and doing so without the ability to be, even grow their family. This is a costly ask from God. Imagine being asked to leave your family, the only place you have ever known, your hometown, to leave all that support and that care and the security, to leave your job and home for a place with you, with, that you have no familiarity with and no security in. That's what is being asked here. So why is God asking Abram to leave everything? Look at verses 2 through 3 with me. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you I will curse, and all the peoples on the earth will be blessed through you. So God promises to bless Abram and his family. And we did a series in the fall called Blessed, Delighting in the Good Life. And one of the reasons we pivoted to Genesis is that this is a way to go through a whole book of the Bible that develops these themes of being blessed and also by being cursed. And that there are these two ways of life, the blessed life and the cursed life. And blessed, as we defined uh, in that series and as Genesis defines it, is, is, it means more than having like good luck or success. That's a more secular way of thinking about it. For example, like to be a blessed person means that you are a joyful person who's experiencing the good life from whom? From God. Blessedness or being blessed recognizes that God is the source of all blessing. And when he blesses, he makes things flourish. He causes life to happen. And the biggest experience of the good life, of, of being blessed, is not just experiencing God's good gifts, but experiencing the giver of those gifts and to be loved by him. The blessed life is one that includes walking intimately in, very, in a very personal way with God because he is making his home with us by his grace. 
The opposite of blessing is curse, someone who's cursed. Being cursed is more than having bad luck or experiencing failure. It's when God hands us over to sin and death and evil. It's when we exchange God for our own foolish pursuits and ambitions and broken relationships. And even when these things and this pathway becomes destructive, we often, if we're on this cursed path, become stubborn and continue on this dark path because the cursed life is not a life that seeks the light of God and his glory, nor gives thanks to the giver of life. Here God is promising to bless Abram and Sarai and make them into a great nation that has a great name. And this is a shocking thing to say to this family. Think about why it's shocking. God will have to give life to this family because in order for this promise to happen, they have to have children. They have to conceive. But as we see in the detail from chapter 11, they have been unable to do so. But yet, yet God is telling them, I am going to bless you. And one of the ways I'm going to do that is to grow your family into a great nation. In addition, a nation needs land. But there's no land. This is a migrant family. They have no land. They have no kingdom. They have no place to dwell. So there's no, there's no indication that they have, will grow into a family. There's no land for them to have. And finally, Abram and his small household are extremely vulnerable. This is not the type of situation that would crush another mighty nation in order to get land. God will have to be their protection. And he promises to do all these things by making a covenant by providing these promises to this family that this is what I'm committing myself to, I will stick with you and I am going to make this happen. And why does God want to bless Abram and make him into a great nation? The end of verse 2 says, so that they will be a blessing. The reason God is going to raise up this new people through Abram is so that others will also be blessed through God's blessing of these people. And how does this occur? Verse 3 says that God will bless those who bless you. And this likely means that others will essentially look at Abram and his family and what God has done and take notice on how this small and vulnerable migrant family became a great nation. And they'll take notice that it is the Lord that not only who did this, but also walks intimately with his people. And the people on the outside of this blessing will take note of all these things and essentially say, I want to be blessed like Abraham. I want to be blessed like these people. I want the proximity that these folks have to this life-giving, promise-keeping God because look what he done in, has done in such a remarkable and miraculous way. So you can see this is much more robust and thicker and deeper than what we were acknowledging in the Minnesota History Museum. This is taking note of something very significant that God is going to do in raising up a people for himself. In Genesis 12:4, it gives this response. So Abram listens to what God says and says, Abram went 
Just as the Lord had told him, he's obedient to the call of God. And so he goes with Sarai and Lot to this land, and he takes all the possessions he has, including just a tent, because that's all they have to sleep in. And they arrive in this land called Canaan, which is occupied by a nation that is much stronger and more powerful than this small migrant family. Yet Abram and his household travel around this land, going to different sites that the text is highlighting, and at each place he worships God. He acknowledges that God is with them and pauses to give offering and to worship the Lord. And in those moments, God continues to speak and assure him of his promise. To your offspring, God says to Abram, I will give this land that you're walking through and worshiping me in. The writer of Hebrews takes note of this part of the Genesis story in Hebrews 11, 8 through 10. It says, by faith, Abraham, Abram will eventually be called Abraham, when called to go to a place he would later receive as in his, his inheritance, obeyed and went, even though he did not know where he was going. By faith, he made his home in the promised land like a stranger in a foreign country. He lived in tents, as did his sons Isaac and Jacob, who were heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city with foundations, whose architect and builder is God." Here, the author of Hebrews is giving examples of faith, and Abraham is one of them. He says in, in the opening verse of chapter 11, faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. And then he gives a bunch of examples with Abraham being one of them. How can someone have confidence in something that you cannot see, something that's in the future that you haven't experienced yet? And the text says, Hebrews 11 says, it's because God is the one making the promise about the future. And that's why you can hope in it. It's, some, it's not some type of weird, naive faith. This is a faithful God who has done faithful things throughout history and has a pattern of sticking to his promises. And so he makes a commitment to you so that you can have assurance when you look into the future with faith that you can have hope that it's going to happen in a very objective and secure way. This is not wishful thinking. This is the security that is happening in the heart of faith because of eternal God doing the things that he does when he makes promises and sticks to them. That's what's going on right now. And Abram and his household need to have this type of assurance. As a reminder again, he is a migrant household with no power, no children, and no business thinking that this land that's occupied by a more powerful nation could ever be his. That's, in a sense, in an earthly way, that's crazy talk. That's a crazy way to think about this world. But his hope is not in himself and earthly circumstances, but in this promise-making and keeping God, that when he makes a commitment, it is as good as done, that God will raise up a people in a particular place, and these people will be blessed by this life-giving God, the life-giving presence of this God, and the world will then look at this blessed people and say, I want to know this God and be loved by him. That's what the New Testament authors believed about this narrative, and it's applied to the church today. This forward-looking faith is how God's people, the church, in the New Testament become a blessing to the world as well. You think about the Sermon of the Mount, when Jesus Christ is talking about the good life, the blessed life, and those beatitudes. 
Let me give you some examples. Verse 4, 8, and 10 uh, in Matthew 5 say, this is Jesus saying, Blessed are those, the, this is the one that has the good life, are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. And blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Here the good life, Jesus makes clear, includes things like mourning and persecution. Why? Because there's a day of comfort that God promises us that we experience the good life now even in hardship because we can look ahead and hope like Abram did, that something better is going to come. And Jesus will go on to explain that those that experience this blessed life will serve as a light to the world when people see God's people being blessed and they will see that and recognize that that is the light of God from heaven in these people. Matthew 5, 14 says about God's people, you are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on a stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. We will be known by the light of Christ that shines in us. And when others see it and they're looking for it, they will want to have that blessed life in Christ. And the reverse is true in the New Testament as well. That some will look at that light and not want it, just like some will look at Abram and his family and those blessings and curse him and say, I do not want that. Because those who do evil will want to continue down a path of pride and envy. They don't want to come into the light. Because why? The light exposes them. And it calls people to change. You can't stay on your path of darkness if you're exposed by the light. That's to admit that the life that you are living and the path that you are on is not the good life because light dispels the darkness. So here we have the setup in Genesis 12 again that God is intervening in history, calling a person and a people to himself to restore not just this people but through this act of redemption and restoration to restore the whole world. But we know how this has gone so far. Life outside of Eden hasn't been going very well. There's been a pattern, right, from Adam to Noah and Cain and Babel, and it shows these examples of human beings that are called to extraordinary things and then absolutely blow it and struggle in the process. And you might be thinking, is Abram going to be a little different? And the answer is absolutely not. So get ready for his first of many mess-ups that will happen in the book of Genesis. Now he starts to get into trouble. Look at verse 10 with me. Now there was a famine in the land, and Abram went down to Egypt to live there for a while because the famine was so severe. This famine causes a, a shortage of food, and often what happens in these days is that they would go to Egypt because they had the Nile. They had a more, uh, better source of water so that there would be more food in Egypt. So Abram and his family go to Egypt to be able to get through this famine. Uh, now, now Abram is uh, away from both home and this promised land. He's in a different land. So his household is even more vulnerable because of this famine. And now he's in Egypt, not even in Canaan. And in order to protect himself from this vulnerable situation, he comes up with a terrible idea. Look at verses 11 through 13. 
As he was about to enter Egypt, he said to his wife Sarai, I know what a beautiful woman you are. When the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Then they will kill me, but let you live. Say you are my sister, so that I will be treated well for your sake, and my life will be spared because of you. That's a terrible idea. No matter how you exegete it, that's, that's just an awful bad idea. And it's just this interesting detail that it's giving to set up this situation. Uh, it, it would appear from this text that maybe Abram married up a little bit. And some of the, some of the ways you could read this is, this, is this, you could be like, well, is Abram just kind of this jealous, paranoid husband that's like worried about, uh, about people um, you know, taking his wife from him? But the text will go on and affirm that, that Sarai or Sarah is objectively beautiful, that Egyptians, when she goes into this land, will take note of her beauty. Uh, I think it's funny it says nothing about Abram's looks. I mean, it might not mean that he's ugly, but it, he's probably mid, right? He's probably like, eh, forgettable, because the text just says, like, she's the one that you would note. It actually reminded me of, there's this SNL skit, I have a picture of it here, uh, that sets up the scene of this accident that happened in a grocery store, and the reporter goes to report on the accident, but then he gets so distracted about this couple, because they're together, and so he just starts to fail to report on the accident, because he just wants to understand, how did this happen? And, uh, you know, because in my pastoral mind, I think about these things. I was just like, if, if, there, was a, if there was an interview that happened of Abraham, Abraham and Sarah before they went to uh, Egypt, it probably looked like this, right? Where you got uh, Sarai there and Abram is just kind of like not thrilled about the situation he's about to face. <laughs> he's like, this is going to go rough. So anyway, that's maybe modern day version of Abram and Sarai right there. But here, think about this. So this is what he's concerned about, right? So he's concerned that powerful men will take note of his wife's beauty, find out that she is married to him, and then kill Abram to get to her. Now that seems like, does that really happen? Well, think about later in the Old Testament, right? Where this happened with a great king of Israel named King David, who did a similar thing. When he saw the beauty of a woman named Bathsheba, took her for his own, even though they were not married, and then eventually had her husband killed in the battlefield, right? This sort of thing happened, and it happened in Abraham's day as well. It's, it's another example how, how the abuse of power often leads to the abuse of others. Abram knows this, but it's clear from the text that he is setting up this ruse to only cover himself up for selfish reasons. You can see that by the way he describes what he's concerned about. Notice the I and the me that he uses in describing what he's concerned about. They will kill me, he says, if they find out. So I would be treated well if they find out that you're my sister instead of my wife. Uh, Sarai is silent and we only hear it from Abram, which may be a small way that the text is showing that Abram bears the responsibility for this decision rather than her. And there's some interesting ways that different commentaries uh, try to maybe explain everything, but even in the best possible explanation, what's happening now is still a bad idea. It's still one of those things that if you you have a brother in Christ that comes up with anything remotely close to this, like tell your pastor or something, be like, dude, don't, no, this is a bad idea. Don't do anything remotely close to this. This is going to get you in trouble because you're going outside of God's boundaries and wisdom. Let's look at what happens. Verse 14, 
When Abram came to Egypt, the Egyptians saw Sarai was a very beautiful woman. And when Pharaoh's officials saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh, and she was taken into his palace, and he treated Abram well for her sake. And Abram acquired sheep and cattle, male and female donkeys, male and female servants, and camels. So these Egyptians saw the beauty of Sarai. And eventually, an officer of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, noted this too and brings this news back to Pharaoh. And so much so that Pharaoh it gets his attention, and then she is taken into his palace. Sarah is taken into Pharaoh's palace. And now the most powerful person in Egypt has taken Sarai to be his. And if, if you look at the language, if you noted this, right, you might saw that there's similar language that was um, developed in Genesis 3, where one sees the beauty of a fruit and then takes it as his or her own. So too here, someone sees the beauty of Sarai and takes it. But just like the forbidden fruit, taking Sarai in this way is crossing God's ordained boundaries which are put into place so that the world can remain a place of love, peace, and unity. And crossing God's boundaries both violates God's ways and also those made in God's image. And meanwhile, while this is happening, Abram says nothing about the truth of the situation. And Pharaoh treats him well because of this lie, but it's only because of the lie that Abram is acquiring all this stuff in the favor of Pharaoh. I just think at this point that it's also good to pause and think about not how you are above Abram, but his brokenness is, an, is a type of brokenness that might be expressed differently, but a type of brokenness that is in every heart of every sinner. We often make a mess of things when we take matters into our own hands rather than trusting the word of God. The word of God to Abram was, I am going to protect you. I'm going to bring you into this land. I will be your God. I will be in your corner. I got you. But then he saw Egypt, and he was terrified. And instead of relying on the promises of God, he said, I got a better plan to protect myself. Because he lacked the faith to believe that God was going to protect him. And the way that God helps God uh, or the way that Abram helps God is a totally, it's a, it's a totally wrong way that's against the way of God's love. The promised offspring, remember, the promise of God is it going to occur through this marriage and union. And Abram is putting the entire thing in jeopardy right now by handing his wife over in this way. Moreover, he comes across like his father Adam in the garden when the serpent came and enticed humans to take something beautiful even though it was outside of God's boundaries. And instead of saying something, he says nothing about the truth, doesn't get involved, doesn't say anything to Pharaoh like, hey, actually she's my wife. Don't do this. We're bound together. And what God binds together, let no one separate. That would be the true and honest thing to say. But he doesn't say anything. He's silent about the truth and only continues in this ruse that he makes up that makes his life easier at the expense of his wife. How many crafty strategies do we create just because at the end of the day we want to selfishly look out for ourselves rather than those who are entrusted to our care? Because we often want to defend our own name because of the name of God. Or because we actually believe in our ability to figure out how to protect ourselves rather than the promises of God. 
These are good questions to ask at this point in the text so you don't just put yourself above Abram and his own brokenness. So Abram, we see, he's not going to do anything to protect Sarai. So it leads to the question, does anybody care? Well, let's look at verse 17. But the Lord inflicted serious diseases on Pharaoh and his household because of Abraham's wife, or Abram's wife, Sarai. So Pharaoh summoned Abram. What? What have you done to me? He said. Why didn't you tell me she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister so that I took her to be my wife? Now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. Then Pharaoh gave orders about Abram to his men, and they sent him on his way with his wife and everything he had. So Abram does nothing, but God intervenes. And God, the Lord, inflicts diseases, plural, more than one, on Pharaoh. A powerful Pharaoh can do nothing when a holy God sends plagues his way. And somehow Pharaoh knows or finds out that these terrible ailments that he is experiencing is due to Sarai being the wife of Abram. And you can tell by the questions from Pharaoh that he's utterly shocked by the dishonesty of Abram. Even this pagan king has a better moral awareness of this situation than this person who heard the call of God. And Pharaoh likely could have taken Abram's life at this point. But instead, he deports Abram and his family, even allowing him to keep all those, those things that, that Pharaoh gave him because of this lie. So let's review what's happened so far. In the first half of Genesis 12, God promises to protect Abram. God calls Abram to be a blessing to the nation, and God promises to give Abram and Sarai children who will eventually grow into a nation that blesses others. In the second half of chapter 12, Abram doesn't trust God's promise of protection, relies on his own plan. He allows his wife to be taken by Pharaoh, putting in jeopardy his own marriage, and Abram brings this curse and disease to another nation, the power, this powerful leader of another nation, rather than blessing. He did the exact opposite of his calling, even putting in the whole operation of blessing and redemption in jeopardy by his own action. And so then the story ends by God intervening, right? And it's asking this question at this point. Will God abandon his promises right now to redeem and bless the world through this people because of Abram's sin? Will the sin and brokenness of this world force God to abandon his plan, thus giving these powers of darkness the victory? That's the tension that you should feel right now in the text. God made a promise, and now the promise that he gave this to this person, he's messing it up. He's royally messing it up. So what is God going to do? Abandon his plan because of the sin? Or is he going to stick to his promises? And when the story ends with God intervening, it's saying that he is committing to his promise in that moment. Not just to Abram, but to Sarai too. To be the God that is their protector. The one that is going to be by them. And the point here, don't hear me wrong, the point isn't that Abram can get away with anything. That is not the point. The text makes it clear that he's guilty of this, that he's in the wrong, and that he did something that was outside of God's will and God's ways. And honestly, other portions of Scripture warn against any of us ever interpreting a story like this to say, ah, God's never going to do anything. And the prophets and the New Testament warns do not ever take God's patience and grace for granted. 
He is a God of judgment and justice and righteousness too. The point here, though, still is that God keeps his promise even though he promises these things to a broken people that royally mess things up. And he's still going to redeem his people. In the book of Acts, we see something similar that's taking place. In the book of Acts chapter 3, Peter's given a message uh, to these onlookers right after Peter healed a man who couldn't walk from birth. And the people see this miracle, uh, and all the people that witness this, they're all descendants of Abraham, is one of the details that is given in the text. And they're presented in a way that it's clear that they have forgotten this covenant that they have with God, that they are to be a blessing to others. They have drifted far away from God and has, has shown that by rejecting God's own Son, the blessing of the world, Jesus Christ. So Peter calls attention to this point in his opening message. Acts 3, 13 through 15 says, The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his servant Jesus, and you handed him over to be killed, and you disowned him before Pilate, though he decided to let him go. You disown the holy and righteous one and ask that a murderer be released to you. You killed the author of life, but God raised him up from the dead, and we are witnesses of this. So he goes on to say that the powerful faith that he has in Christ is what led to this lame person being uh, healed, and that his listeners are not believing in this name, rejecting that name, and it's resulting in them being cut off from God's blessing. They are cursed because of that. But also, Peter says, if they turn to Christ, then they will be forgiven because God is fulfilling all of his promises to bless the world and restore all things in Jesus Christ. And this is how Peter ends his message in Acts chapter 3, verse 25. You are heirs of the prophets and of the covenant God made with your fathers. He said to Abraham, through your offspring, all peoples on earth will be blessed, you know, including this person that's walking. When God raised up his servant, he sent him first to you to bless you by turning each of you from your wicked ways. And then he provides this path for people that have rejected the good life in Christ and said, you can come back to this blessing because the other good part of the delightful life in Christ is not that we are called to a perfect life but one that continually turns back to the promise keeping God so that we can be forgiven and restored and one of the things and this is where I want to linger to end is that I want you to feel with this question that's been answered by the text will God keep his promise even though sin and brokenness continue to threaten his redemptive plan. And the answer that the text gives is, yes, he will stick to his promise. And all that means for you right now, and turning back to this God of life right now, means that it brings us this massive amount of certainty in any amount of uncertainty that you are experiencing in your life right now. Because one thing that I know is that this Good news of a covenant-keeping, promise-keeping God is such good news in uncertain times. We live in an uncertain world with unreliable hearts. That's the truth. And many of you have just these 
uncertainties tied to experiences of work and relationship and security and justice where you can see time and time again that these things keep being threatened, keep being broken, and you're laying in bed anxious in your heart and you're carrying these burdens throughout the day that you can't stop thinking about and they're often tied to things in your life that you found out they're not reliable and they're not going to bring restoration and they're not going to bring you joy. And then you look inward and say, my heart is not going to be the thing that gets me out of this mess. And here is the good news today. Despite all those things that we experience, despite all the things that you are struggling with, God will keep his promise to you in Jesus Christ. That is the blessed life. And let's turn to him again today and experience that restorative grace that's only found in him.